Welcome back to Cold Truth. Today is a special episode I am really excited for. This is the case of half-sisters Harla Sue Adkins, age 14, and Vicki Lee Stout, age 16. They went for a walk on September 17, 1980, a warm Wednesday afternoon in Dover, Tennessee, land between the lakes, which is a small, quaint town and remains so to this day. They walked Highway 79 to IGA, and then to a small convenience store called The Furnace. They were last seen talking to a male in a blue truck as the girls were walking back towards their home. When they didn't come home, they were reported missing. WKRN News 2's Josh Breslow interviewed David R. Ross, a reporter who has been covering the case from the beginning. He told Josh, quote, There was this three-week span where the girls were missing. The initial reports were that they were runaways, end quote. Josh Breslow also interviewed their sister, Trisha Gordon, who said, quote, I never knew them to disappear before. They just, they wouldn't do that. They had no reason to disappear, end quote. Three weeks later, that proved to be the cold truth. Carla and Vicky's bodies were found by hikers just miles from their home, in a wooded area. They were partially covered and not far from each other, both receiving gunshot wounds to the head. They had been murdered. Forty years have gone by with no answers as to who murdered them, most likely on the day that they were last seen. I'm looking at a picture of them right now. Carla has blonde hair feathered back like Farrah Fawcett, as was the style back then. Her smile is genuine and she looks to be a happy, beautiful 14-year-old girl. Vicky, her 16-year-old half-sister, is just as content, happy, and beautiful as Carla, with the same hairstyle, the only difference being that her hair is a rich brown. In that same interview with Josh Breslow, there is a picture showing the original sketch of the male seen in the blue truck done in 1980, and the age progression showing what he may have looked like in 2000 and in 2014. Trisha Gordon, their sister, tells Josh, quote, What was the purpose? Why? Why these two? End quote. While that question has remained unanswered for 40 long years, there is a renewed sense of hope that their families will finally find the answer to those questions, or at least the who. That hope in part comes from my guests today, Amelia and Lainey from Murder at Land Between the Lakes podcast. They are determined to find those answers, and like myself, they understand the importance of sharing Carla and Vicky's story. So without further ado... Let's hear what they have to say. We are all three in the chat during this episode. Please feel free to ask them questions. We had some difficult, mm, a lot of technical difficulties with recording this episode. We don't have editing teams and tech guys on speed dial, but what we do have is big hearts and the determination to help in any way we can. Okay, one more time. Without further ado... Amelia and Lainey. How did you guys come in contact with Carla and Vicky's case and then eventually her loved ones? So Lainey and I both grew up in Tennessee on different sides of Tennessee, but I grew up close to part of Carla and Vicky's family, one of their older sisters, but I didn't know anything about the case, ironically, until 
last year. One of Carla and Vicky's nephews, he's a little bit younger than me, but I saw he was posting about a murder and I wanted to know more about this murder he was talking about. So I asked him, what is this murder you're interested in? Why are you posting about this murder? And come to find out, you know, they were the aunts, you know, he had never met them. He was born a couple of years later. Ironically, he was born on the exact same day that they were taken years later, a couple of years later. Um, you know, so this was kind of like, you know, it meant a lot to him. He kind of felt like he, you know, he was meant to be born on that day. And this was part of his journey to find out what happened to his aunts. Lainey and I were set to, you know, start broadcasting another podcast, believe it or not, a true crime podcast. And so I asked him, you know, would your family be interested in letting Lainey and I do a podcast on your aunts? And so he asked his mother, um, Trish Gordon, either something they'd be interested in. And they, you know, were on board with it. And so Lainey and I jumped in and it turned into something we didn't expect. Um, we expected to tell the girl's story and it ended up being more investigative than we really thought it would be. Got to know the story of Carla and Vicky. And yeah, that's how we started it. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it really started becoming um, more of a, us learning as we go and more of a real time podcast because what do you think Lainey like it was more real time yeah originally we had started off and we were like we're gonna do a podcast and we're really gonna tell the story of Carla and Vicky honestly it took a life of its own like Amelia said because we realized that not only is the crime unsolved but there's a lot of people out there in the community who are still very vested in figuring out who the killer or killers were you know, Dover is a very, very tight community. It's a small town in Tennessee. People around town know about it. They want to help out. They want to bring this killer or killers to justice just as much as the family and we do. I mean, you have to mm-hmm. imagine it's, you know, it's a small town and, you know, they've lived for 40 years with this potential killer still walking around there. Four decades have gone by, you know, a generation has gone by with still no answers. And that is what I have run into, too. It it has taken on a life of its own, and everyone is so invested. With that, it does come a lot of pressure. How have you guys handled that pressure? That's, I mean, that's that's a great question. (laughs) Um, I'm laughing because... I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because it was so unexpected to get so personally involved with this story, with this situation, with understanding what the family and the community are going through. I think really the way that we've best handled the pressure is to continue to press on and look for answers where we know that they haven't been looked for before. So really Mm -hmm. using all of the resources that we have at our fingertips and not stopping and continuing to keep this as a priority for us and hopefully all of the others who are involved and can make a difference in Mm -hmm. the outcome of this case has been how we've really, I think, best handled the pressure. Yeah. You're very similar to me is like you reached out and were in contact first and then started. That's how I came to do this was just being in the group and then the family reaching out to me, your guys It is. It is really like as the information is coming in and as it's evolving and through your podcast, you've been able to get so many answers from episode to episode. I think that's really cool that people listen and they reach out and say, hey, even if it's like, hey, that wasn't right. And the way you guys handle that is just brilliant. 
why I named Mind Cold Truth. This is the reality of what they lived. For me, I just wondered if you, you, I feel this, and I've grown to love so many of Shannon's family and my other two cases, this pressure of what if I let them down? What if this doesn't get the result we want? I just wondered if other podcasters feel that way too. <laughs> or is it just me? But I feel like, you know, you're doing a lot for her as well in the family. And um, we talked about this too in the last episode as far as like all, everyone helping out. And it's called them, you know, citizen detectives. And I learned a lot from you know Billy Jensen and his book, Chase Darkness with Me. And asking mm-hmm. for help from the public is all we can really do at this point. It's been 40 years. A lot of the evidence is gone. And, you know, and like you said, when we get something wrong and someone telling you you got something wrong, that's all we can hope for is trying to get it right and trying to get the answers. And it's all you can depend mm-hmm. on is what people remember. And people might have answers, even if they think even if it's something so small it might be what we're looking for. Even if they saw the girls that day, just saw them in past, they're not telling that because they think it's not important. It is. It's part of that timeline. And they don't even think it's important. And it is. It's so important trying to like nail down what happened that day. Where were they? Mm -hmm. What were their plans? Why did they miss school that day? What, who were they talking to that day on the phone? Everything is so important. Oh, yes. And the, the devil's in the details. Yeah. And the devil is an actual real person. When you can nail down as many details as possible, you can usually find the devil. I just want to hear Carla and Vicky's story, go through the timeline, what happened, however you want to tell their story. September 17th, 1980, Carla and Vicky missed school that morning. And some people believe that they didn't miss school on purpose. Some people believe they did miss school on purpose. And there's a lot surrounding that. That morning, Vicky's boyfriend, Randall Riggins, um, was set to turn himself into jail that day along with her brother, Randy. Randall and Randy and another guy by the name of Bobby Morgan came to the house to say goodbye, and they went off to the courthouse. Carla and Vicky, later on that afternoon, around 3 o'clock, left the house to head down. They started walking, and they left to go to one store to get cigarettes, gum, whatever they were set out to get, left there. Was that called the furnace? Well, the first place they were spotted at was a place called the IGA. And they were spotted there with supposedly, now this is where the timeline's always tricky, supposedly with Randall, the boyfriend. But this is where it's really tricky is supposedly he was still held in jail. Records show that he was still in jail. But eyewitnesses say they saw him and they saw him that day with the girls, like later on in that afternoon. And so, and multiple witnesses, right? Multiple witnesses saw him with the girls. Now, Randy, the brother did stay in jail that day. He was held in jail. A reliable source does say that Randall does say he was with the girls that day, Hmm. that he was in a van. He had the girls, but then the source also says when he left, the girls left on foot and left and left the IGA. Randall left in the van, not with the girls. The girls left on foot and they were headed towards the furnace. Quick question. Did he pick them up from their house? No. Did they they, arrive there with him? They arrived there with him is what the eyewitness said, that they arrived there at the IGA with him. And so they left their trailer and I don't know if he picked them up along the way. If that is what happened, he picked them up along the way and they stopped in and then he left and they left on foot. They went to the furnace 
I don't know if they didn't find what they wanted or didn't get what they wanted. It's like a little grocery store as well, or a little, I guess, a little convenience store to get what they wanted there. And then when they left there, they went back down Highway 79, and they were spotted talking to a man in a blue truck by an eyewitness. And from that point on, they were never seen again. Now, this is all hmm. on the same highway. Did they go in like an organized fashion, like they left? their house then the iga was next on the road and then the furnace was after that so that makes no sense. they had to pass by, by their house am i right laney yeah so they would have left their house gone to, left gone to the iga then they would have left the iga they would have had to have passed back by their trailer in order to get to the furnace and then they were turning around and walking back towards their trailer when they were spotted talking to the person in the blue truck now, the witness that saw okay. them get into the, or saw them talking mm. to the man in the blue truck, the blue truck spotted them, did a U-turn in the road, and came back to get them, came back to see them. Okay. Does that seem logical to you guys? No, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if they didn't get what they wanted, or if it was true that Randall pick, picked them up and distracted them and took them to another place. I, I don't know. I understand the sequence of events. Um, I don't know. It kind of depends on what they were buying, too. For some reason, I have in my head. I mean, I know this was 1980, but what if they went to the IGA and got candy, gum, soda, and then they went to the furnace to buy cigarettes because they knew they could get cigarettes there. Right. Yeah, that's true. The furnace was definitely more of a mom and pop type shop. And it could have been one of the things that was, you know, a a warm September day. They were out Mm -hmm. and about and maybe the furnace was a place where sometimes people hung out and they wanted to just go check out and see maybe somebody's hanging out there. So basically, if but if they walked from the IGA to the furnace, they would pass back by their own home. Okay, so now, okay, I just wanted to clear that up because that was one of the questions I had had of just of where everything was. I, you know, I think just from the the rest of that that scenario, the girls were not seen again that day. So the last person or the last witness was the person who saw them talking to the guy in the blue truck. We do know that. The mom had reached out to the police to let them know that she was worried the girls were missing. They, at first, disregarded it and said, you know, that they're probably just running around. They might have run away. They were pretty laissez-faire in actually responding to the fact that the girls were missing. She reported them again the next day. And I think that was still their same attitude. I forgot the exact quote, Amelia, that David Hicks had about saying, oh, they probably just ran away. And so then there was there was really nothing that had happened as far as the investigation that we are aware of after that day that the they showed up at their house the next day. That was an odd comment that he made. It seemed very familiar. When I see them, I'm going to kick their butt. Kind of odd. Wondered if he knew them. Um, I feel based on the feedback that we've gotten and the comments that he made that they had some knowledge of each other, at least. This girl, Carla and Vicky were all in the house. And then when Margie Nell and think and Randy, think Randall, I'm not sure if there was a third person, went outside and Margie said, told the girls to go in the go hide in the in the trailer. And they all like went in the room or went into their room and like kinda like laid down and hid. And one of the girls peeked out the window to see who it was. And they saw Jack Charlton and David Hicks pulled up in the driveway and they were all kind of like shouting and yelling something. Hmm. Well, that's strange. And this was prior, not long, but 
just just prior to the girls going missing. So I don't know what the argument was over. I don't know if Randy had been in trouble for something. I don't know what the argument was over. Okay. My point being is that that both David Hicks and Jack Charlton were familiar with the girls okay. in the in the home and Margie mm-hmm. and the trailer. Okay, gotcha. Back at the crime scene, the evidence that was collected, most of it's gone missing. From what we understand is it was collected and, you know, most of it was collected in garbage bags or whatever, you know, bags collected it in. It was put in the back of Jack Charlton's car. He was taking it to Nashville and his car was broken into and, you know, all of the evidence went missing. (laughs) Okay. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that someone would break into his car and just steal a bunch of crime scene evidence that makes zero sense. So whatever they have left, you know, are the girls clothes that they were wearing? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm assuming that's what they have left. And I think very, very few things are remaining. And that's what Lainey and I are fighting for is to have that tested at Parabon Labs for any DNA that could be remaining. Absolutely. That would be crucial. Do you know if samples have already been tested? You know, I think things were tested in the past, um, but things have really, you know, changed over the years, you know, over the past, you know, 40 years, things have really been, you know, Lainey can answer that better. She's really been studying, you know, on Parab- you know, with Parabon. Yeah. I don't know if any of you guys watched, you know, Genetic Detective last night, too. I did. did. Yeah. I followed Cece from before I was even into crime. So, Me yeah, too. I love that. But that's usually helpful if they do not know who the suspect is. Do you feel that they do not know who killed Carla and Vicky? I was going to say, I don't, I, I don't think they definitively know who mm-hmm. killed Carla and Vicky. I think they have a potential list of suspects that they may be interested in. But mm-hmm. something like a DNA test would help to definitively identify um, or who was on the scene that day with the girls. And that, I think, would give them the ammunition to really fully identify who the person was. Given the fact that it happened 40 years ago and a lot of people still remember Carla and Vicky, their family, and the day that they disappeared, There's a lot of information from folks who knew them just about what may have happened. So in order to really sift through all of the stories and the information that has been shared over the years to really get to that person, we're really hoping that the technology that that we have today with DNA testing through organization like Parabon Nanolabs Mm -hmm. would be able to help us get to that, that final answer. Absolutely. I mean, we're down to the point that they can pull a DNA profile from a hair shaft, which is just unbelievably awesome. During that three week period, do we believe that they died on the day that they were in? Because of the heat and the decomposition was so bad, there's no way to really truly know. But if you're going on what Joe Stout said, hearing shots that day, the belief is that they died that day. Mm -hmm. I think we do know for sure it was point blank. I did want to kind of backtrack a little bit. Or maybe it's not backtracking. At some point, someone came up with a sketch. Was that in that three-week period? There was a sketch done immediately, but no, not many people saw it because it ran in a paper. This is very interesting. It ran in a paper, but not the local paper. So it wasn't until years later that saw the sketch and it had the progressions. The sketch that was done immediately, the family and the locals didn't even know that there was a sketch. That's so odd. Right. It ran in the county over. It ran in a different newspaper. 
was it closer to? No, they were found only a few miles away from home. It it wasn't like they were found far away. They were only found within like seven miles total. Like their entire route from like where they started from to where they were found was within a 10 mile range or like seven to 10 miles. So it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. Do you guys discount the sketch because of that fact that no one really close to the investigation even knew? Or is it still something that's viable to you guys in your opinion? It's interesting. Um, the sketch, the sketch looks like many people on the list of potential suspects. You can make it in your mind. You can trick your mind into making it look like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Some people believe this sketch was made to look like certain people. Some people believe that the eyewitness actually knew the person mm-hmm. and just is too scared to say who they saw. It's a little bit of. I don't really know what to say about the sketch, Lainey. Um, Do you know what to say? (laughs) (laughs) I think that the sketch was something that people have put a lot of focus on because it's one of the only things that had to go on. But the whole process around the sketch, I think, has a lot of questions around it. Like, why would it run and not the local paper? That doesn't make sense at all. Was the sketch developed off of a witness that actually knew who the person was and was just trying to give an, uh, you know, a, a visual description because they didn't want to say who it was? I don't really know. I think this probably is not as helpful as the DNA. So, I, I mean, I think at that point, it's like, okay, where where are we now? I hate sketches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll tell you something interesting about the truck. So people wonder, was the truck real? Did she really see for a long time? But I will tell you at the scene, there was a strip of blue paint on one of the trees. Like if someone was to have left in a hurry, there was a strip of blue paint on a tree. Oh, wow. And Joe Stout saw a blue truck leaving the scene as well. So was the blue truck real? Most Mm. likely. Yeah, definitely. So they see someone talking to him in the blue truck. The uncle sees a blue truck and a brown brown brown, car a brown car flying out just after he hears gunshots and then there's blue paint that is found at the scene on a tree correct okay but was any of that information put out in the media prior to the sketch coming about you see what i'm asking there I believe so. I believe the blue truck was part of the sketch. I believe the blue truck was mentioned together. But like when the articles went out about the girls, it did it did say they were talking to someone in a blue truck. Gotcha. Truck that was shared. But when they actually put the composite sketch together and they published it, they did not publish it in Stewart County. I see. Which is unusual because you would think that they would publish anything about a crime that happened in that county in that county's newspaper yeah and then it also when stuff like that happens it begs the question of why and how why was it not this is ground zero you would want this information to go out here above everywhere else right so even if you were going to publish it in another area wouldn't you still publish it in dover Uh, yeah since we know that it wasn't why was it not (laughs) yeah exactly wow there's just so many little Mm -hmm. things about this case that it's no wonder it's 40 years later there seems to be so much information and like this seemed to be something that should have been solved do you guys feel that way as well i think it could have been solved i i do feel like it's a case that could have been solved and i feel like 
you know, it was a social class issue as well. Um, they weren't a wealthy family. And I feel mm-hmm. like maybe, you know, there was a blind eye turned to this family that didn't get to see, you know, there was no justice for this family because of the social class. Mm-hmm. I feel like it played a role in that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I totally agree. I think that this could have been solved. I actually feel bad for the, the current investigators because it's so clear that if some steps were taken back when the crime happened or even shortly thereafter, you know, this wouldn't be on their plates today. What was reported next to you either by in the media, like the newspapers or the families as far as funerals for them? They had a graveside service for the girls, closed casket, and they, you know, they had it, they came straight from their autopsy. And then, um, they, you know, they just had a graveside service for them. Hmm. Do, does the family remember anyone being there that they were like, what are you doing here? Or someone that should have been there that didn't show up? You know, I asked the family if they actually, it's funny you asked that. I did ask the family if they remembered a police presence at the, you know, at the service at all. And at first, you know, they don't remember, you know, any police presence at all, which would be interesting because you would think after a double homicide, you know, nowadays that's one of the main things they do. They have a big police presence there to see who does show up or who doesn't. And, um, and then they came back and told me that they really can't say that because they don't remember. So it wouldn't be fair to say there wasn't police presence there. But no, I, I don't think it'd be fair to say who wasn't there because or who was there because I think it was just mm. so long ago. No one really remembers. Yeah. Well, and you never know, like we've talked about before, maybe just hearing it, this question asked this particular way, it'll jog a memory. Right. Exactly. Maybe someone, yes. you know, someone hearing this will be able to tell us who was there and who wasn't. I'm assuming that they have gravestones. They do. Has the family ever found anything odd at the grave sites that they didn't place there themselves over the years? You know, nothing they've told us about. You know, one thing that we have wondered, you know, was this one time killing for whoever killed these girls or was this a serial killer? Mm -hmm. Did someone come through or was it a stranger? Did someone come through the town? and pick up these girls and kill them? Or was it someone that they knew? But I will tell you that what we did learn about Carla and Vicky is that the girls did not get in a car with a stranger. That's one thing we have learned. And I feel like I know that about them. I mm-hmm. feel like I know that whoever they got in the car with was someone that they knew. That similarity. is I feel the same way with Shannon. Yeah, we've had multiple people confirm that. Mm-hmm. That's good. As far as the family goes, I just always like to clear that up. Has law enforcement or the media came out and family has been cleared? The family? Mm-hmm. The family's been cleared. Um, I don't know how much, you know, everybody was questioned or if everybody in the family was given a polygraph. But as far as we know, yeah, I think everyone in the family has been cleared. Okay. Those necklaces, when I was listening to the podcast, that was one thing that... Mm-hmm. You guys had mentioned, was there ever any, did you ever find the other person that gave Carla the necklace? So that's actually been a very interesting subject. So from the very first day I I looked at that autopsy, it was very interesting to me that it was written in, in a memo piece of the autopsy that Carla was missing a necklace that a boyfriend had given her because I asked the family from the beginning who gave Carla this necklace and the family you know never knew of a necklace that Carla had been given like no one knew about what necklace they're talking about but my question is it was signed off by Jack Charlton it said you know this was done by Jack Charlton and I guess what I want to know is how do you know something is missing 
You have to know it's supposed to be there to know it's missing. Does that make sense? Bingo. Yeah. 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 I mean, so how does he know? Did he speak to her boyfriend? Is that how he came to, does he, did he know who her boyfriend was and he had interviewed him? Right. Like that's, I guess that's what I'm asking. I'm trying to figure that out. Like I, exactly. Like who is her boyfriend? Like no one's ever really figured out who's Carla's boyfriend. And how does he know that there's a necklace missing? Yeah. That's, that's very odd. Anyway, that's my question about the necklace. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, so those were things that were in the autopsy that, so one of them would have come in with a necklace and one was without. Was there ever any search for this supposed necklace that anyone remembers? Or they just flat out don't know anything about it? I don't think there was ever anything else brought up about it. It's so weird because the same thing happened in this case, in Shannon's case as well. All of a sudden there's just a necklace across the street found. Really? It's <laughs> like, is this? Really? Is this? Yeah. Do you have a description was, of that necklace? I can ask Billy. Billy would know, but it was never recovered. But it's just odd that these two necklaces in both cases just come up out of nowhere, really. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting uh, coincidence. Isn't that weird? I thought that was weird. Because when I was hearing that, I was like, necklace? Necklace? What? Did I just hear that? <laughs> when I was listening. But another thing when I was listening, because I, ha- I do, I really love it. You guys did such a great job of laying out the information. And I know you're brand new to podcasting when you started. So I just want to say like props to both of you for your work. Thank you. you- Yeah, like it's interesting and the information is easy to remember just because of the way you guys present it. So that's probably why I'm asking you so many questions just because I was just, I want to know more. I want to know more. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love the way that you think about this case and ask questions because it actually sparks a lot of thoughts for us as well. Yeah. Have you found that? I have. I know when you guys, I loved interview you did with Brandon from... Searching for ghosts, that was so inspirational for me. It just because when I heard that, it was, I think I had one episode, maybe two out. And then you guys had reached out to me and it was just like, wow, this is really a community that pays it forward and helps and help each other. Because really our goal is justice, like mm-hmm. a just justice and some form of closure because they'll never really have closure for these families and to be able to work together as a podcasting community. I think it's so awesome. And it gave me a lot of hope of where we could be. Could we be where searching for ghosts is with our cases by working together and um, just helping each other out? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That's what we always want when we start this, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You guys have checked out Pain Lindsay yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. It's unfolding as the episodes are coming out. Right, right. And then all of a sudden, and the same with uh, Searching for Ghosts with Brandon, it was this led to something. Like, I hope we have the same effect that they've had as we keep trugging away. Well, these poor girls, I mean, they didn't deserve, I mean... Shannon and Carla and Vicky. I mean, they could be adults, but you know, now, and it's just so sad. Mm -hmm. It really is. And that's my motivation. That brings me to one of my questions about the impact of murder. I always like to talk about that because I have a relative that was murdered and, you know, she was missing and then her body was later found. And the impact of that on my family even like two generations removed, it's evident. 
Do you guys, have you picked up on anything like that with Vicky and Carla's family of just the impact that those murders had on their family in the last 40 years? Um, Roger, one of their older brothers, he passed away. They're just, their whole family has definitely been impacted. Their mother is still living. Uh, we would love to see, you know, her um, have answers while she's still living. You know, just see an impact, you know, throughout their whole family. They just would really, really want to see answers. We would have loved to have seen answers before Roger passed away. Um, you know, he loved his sisters. I, I think it would do a lot of people, not only the, for the family, but everyone that's been involved. I, I, I've seen struggles for a lot of people in that community are struggling. I think there's mm -hmm. been people that are holding on to some things just because I think people have been scared. I think there's been some people that have been silenced over the years. Um, that's what we've been told. I don't know who they were silenced mm -hmm. by exactly. Uh, I think we have some ideas, but I think that there would be a lot of people that would be a, at a lot more peace if we could just find the answers. I think it would just do a lot of people good if this would just be answered for everybody. Yeah, because you're constantly wondering Am I friends with the killer? Is the killer standing next to me in line? Is the killer at sitting next to me in church? There's just this unresolved feeling of you're suspicious of everyone. And it's hard to live with that, even as a community member, but let alone the impact that has on the family of just constant wonder. It's very sad. Definitely a fear of is this person still out there and is this person in my community and would this person commit another crime again because if somebody's willing to commit two brutal murders like that, what are the chances that they wouldn't do that again? And also if, you know, there there's obviously people who in the community have heard tales or rumors of the murder. If they believe that somebody did do this and they may know who it is and that somebody could be above the law or get away with it, that's even more disturbing. You know, we were looking to see if there were cases that were similar and we came across Shannon's case and there's so many similarities. So, Mel, I just want to tell you like how I came across your case. Shannon's murder was, it just popped up on my Facebook feed one day. It just said about a murder in Prattville and that, that really caught my attention. I feel like that was like a sign. I, yeah. It gave me chills when you it said that. It was just up. like from my side of that story, like touch my heart. Cause it's like, Oh my gosh, thank God. Because it's getting out there and it's showing up in people's feet and seeing it. That's what I want for this family more than anything, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, so there were several similarities that just kind of jumped out at us, you know, mm -hmm. young girl lived in a trailer found in the woods not far from where they had gone missing same time of year although it was obviously years later that shannon went missing so there just had like enough similarities that we started to think oh this is like definitely somebody we should talk to similarities in the cases but also maybe mm -hmm. we can learn and help each other Exactly. I'm so glad you guys reached out. When I listened to your podcast, I was like, oh, wow, you know, picked up on the same things. It's brazen to just the abduction alone is very brazen in both cases because it was in the middle of the day. In her case, it was a neighborhood that a lot of folks were home. And with Vicky and Carla, like, wasn't it the main stretch? It was the main stretch. Struck me right away. And then the fact that they were found at a different location, 
but even the trash bag, I know that the trash bag is just like something that was just in your guys' story, but Shannon was found in a trash bag. You hear all these little things and you're just kind of like, wow, are we supposed to talk? Yeah, no, exactly. I think it was, uh, it was meant to be. Yeah. So I'm so glad you guys reached out. And is there anything that I can do to help you guys? Well, you know what? We would love to have you on our podcast. I would love to ask everybody to tune in to the next episode of Murder at Land Between the Lakes so we can learn more about your investigation and maybe help each other out on that side. I love it. I think it's a great idea. Then we can really compare notes on these cases. That would be wonderful. Appreciate you guys taking the time to tell Carla and Vicky's story. Thank you for having us today. We really appreciate it and we look forward to learning more about the Shannon Paul case and figuring out more of the similarities or differences and how we might be able to help each other. I love it. We're better together. Exactly. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Cold Truth. I sure enjoyed talking with Amelia and Lainey from Murder at Land Between the Lakes, so much so that they will be interviewing me for their next episode. This is how we spread the stories of these cases that so many have never even heard of. We do this to keep the victims' names out there, keep pressure on the powers that be so that victims like Carla Atkins, Vicki Stout, Shannon Polk, Nicole Bowen, Ray Hanish, Abigail Williams, Liberty German, and so, so many more are not forgotten and that their families get to see the killers of their loved ones walk those courtroom steps after receiving a just and rightly earned sentence. By spreading their stories, we hope that investigating agencies get the support and the funds needed to run DNA or put together teams to pour back over cases left unsolved. Fun should never be a reason that a murderer is free. Maybe that's naive of me to say, but I don't care. The maybe I care about is that someone out there with the resources and the money will hear these cases and help with that. I don't have either, but like Amelia and Lainey, we are trying to do our part. We are not investigators. We are not going to be the ones that put these murderers behind bars as they deserve, but we do hope to help. If you have any tips for any of these cases, please email me at coldtruthpodcast at gmail.com and I will get you the numbers and emails of the proper authorities to call. And as I said before, I will be telling Shannon's story on Murder at Land Between the Lakes podcast. In the meantime, please listen to their podcast and further familiarize yourself with both cases. We have a lot more to discuss. Did y'all catch what Amelia said about Prattville? Hmm, interesting. Interesting indeed. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my guest and to Taylor for the music. By the way, I'm going to be hitting you up for some more real soon. If you want your own music for your podcast or YouTube, send me an email and I will get you in contact with Taylor for pricing. Y'all have a good one.